we believe from the Bible, are actually quite contrary to the values of the world around us. So what we read, what we discover from the Bible about sex, relationships, marriage, all those sorts of things, actually we feel like we're swimming against the tide to some extent in culture. So this is really helpful stuff for us um, to, to go through together. And I thought Chris did an amazing job a couple of weeks ago preaching on, on sex and intimacy within marriage and talking about love languages. I have to say it took me far too long to work out my wife's love, love languages um, probably five or six years of buying a really expensive birthday presents and getting a really underwhelming response before I finally realised she's not that bothered about presents. She's much more interested in physical touch and acts of affirmation. So now I just give her a little shoulder rub and don't bother buying her birthday present anymore. And that's fine by me. <laughs> I do buy her presents, really. So. Um, Chris, Chris really brought to us uh, brilliantly... Um, the biblical view of God's heart for sex, that it was designed by God, it was given to us, but it was given to us to be enjoyed within the confines of a marriage relationship. Um, and, and that is quite counterculture because society says, take what you can get. Sex is there for everyone. Enjoy it. Go and, go and do what you want. You know, take, get as much of it as you can. The Bible says sex is great, yes, but it's for marriage and that's, that's what God's designed it for. Um, and today we're looking at another area where Paul lays out the expectations he has for Christians um, which, again, are quite different to the prevailing winds of, shall we say, 21st century Liverpool. So we're going to be looking at relationships. And actually, there's something in this talk for everyone. This isn't just a talk about marriage and divorce, although there will be some of that in it. But actually, this, Paul has words in this, in this passage for literally whatever relationship status you find yourself in, whether you're single, whether you're engaged, whether you're seeing someone, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether whatever. There's something in this passage, I would say, for everyone. And Paul was really, really aware of the wide range of situations that people find themselves in. And it is the same for us today. So many people are asking, what is God's plan for my love life? And very aware, speaking in a room, even like even of this size, that there'll be a wide range of experience, of history, of baggage, of, of wondering what's ahead in the room. And there's so many different reasons why people get in those situations. And it's not a simple matter at all. And Paul was answering these questions because the, the Corinthian church wants to, know was, wants to know what does Christianity mean for my relationships? Are rules tighter than they were before in my old life? Can I now do what I want under grace? What, what happens? Do, you know, do I get married? Do I stay married? Do I stop my marriage? What does God want me to do? And Paul is really answering those questions today. But before we go any further, we're going to read the passage and then uh, we'll, we'll dig into it. So it's 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going from verses 6 to 16. So I say this as a concession, not as a command. And Paul's referring back there to, if you remember at the end of Chris's passage last time, Paul was talking about, you know, if you do, need, if you do want to abstain from sex in a married couple, do it for a short time, by agreement, don't withhold sex from each other. Um, but if you do want to do it to focus on God, do it for a short time by agreement. And he's saying, he's following that up and saying, listen, I'm not saying that as a command. You don't have to do that. You don't need to withhold sex from each other. But sometimes you might want to do it. So I'll say that as a concession, but I'm not commanding you to do it. And then he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. And one has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, 
I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they stay, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we are going to go through the passage, looking at some of these verses. And Paul's going to give his thoughts, as we've seen, on the various situations that the Corinthians found themselves in, and that many of us will find ourselves in now. Before, any, before we go any further, though, I think it's really important that we view this passage and other passages in the Bible around marriage and relationships and divorce and all those sorts of things through, some, through, through a framework, through what I would say three really key things that we need to keep in mind all the way through this sort of stuff. These, I think, are three truths which are throughout the Bible which frame our whole view or should frame our whole view of marriage and divorce and relationships, all those sorts of things. The first is this. God designed marriage, but it's not for everyone. God did create male and females in complementary roles. That's what Genesis tells us. Male and female are there, designed separately with with different roles in life. And God's design in Genesis 2 is for man and woman to leave the protection of their parents and to cleave. That's the funny word that it uses, but cleave to one another. And, And that means going from two separate entities into one new whole entity, one flesh, the Bible tells us. And we know, as Chris preached to us a couple of weeks ago, that in that one flesh, in that new entity, that cleaving, God gives us sex to marry couples to enjoy and as the best pattern, actually, for for procreation. And marriage is intrinsic to God's ultimate destiny for humanity. Do you know, as, as Christians, we are heading, all of us, for a wedding one day. All of us. We are heading to a day where Christ, as the husband, will marry his bride, the church. Ephesians 5 tells us all about it. The body of believers, those of us who have accepted Jesus as Lord, as being the bride of Christ. We are going to marry our Savior. And so Christians, brothers and sisters, we are part of a bride that is promised to a husband. That there is a wedding going to take place. And Jesus is the ultimate husband. He lays down his life for his bride. Beyond mere chivalry. You know, I, I think I'm quite happy myself when I hold the door open for Debbie, but to lay his life down for his bride, absolutely incredible. And so our marriages, the Bible tells us, are a foreshadowing of God's ultimate wedding. Marriage on this earth between humans speaks of something bigger and better to come. The moment where Jesus is united to his bride, the church. And that makes marriage extremely important. It's important in an earthly sense, 
but it's also important in the in the in the long term sense because it's it's telling the world something about what God wants to do. But and Paul is also really really clear on this. In an earthly sense, not every single person is destined to marry. Paul, as he writes this passage, is writing in a point, from a point of view of singleness. He may be married at some point, but certainly at this point that he's writing to us, he tells us he's not married. And it's, he's clear on that. And actually, it's not, a necess- it's not necessary that every Christian will or should marry. And actually, Paul describes celibacy and a single life as, as being what can be a gift from God. And we will come on to this a little bit more later. But I want to say this. Singleness is no less important and no less valuable than marriage. Okay? Single people are uniquely able to devote themselves to God's service more almost than than married people. And Paul values it extremely highly and so should we. Okay? We will come on to that a little bit later. So God designed marriage but it's not necessarily for everyone. The second point is this. Well, it's number one again, but it is number two. God hates divorce. And God wants us to avoid divorce as far as we possibly can. Marriage is meant to be permanent. But I will say this, and we will come on to it, there may be occasions where divorce turns out to be the lesser of two evils, and we will come on to that scripturally as well. But I want to say this, God is a covenantal God. That means he's a God who makes and keeps promises forever. And marriage is a a promise. It is a covenant. And when it's broken, that is a big deal to God. It's not a small deal. It's not a small matter as society would have us believe today. We we live in a world of prenuptial agreements and people hedging their bets and saying, okay, I'll marry you, but just in case we do divorce, then I'm keeping all the stuff, you know, that sort of thing. That's, That's not God's picture of marriage. There's very little that upsets God more than seeing promises broken. When we see passionate, meaningful vows reduced to empty, meaningless words. Malachi 2 um, tells us, literally, as it actually translates, it literally says the words, God hates divorce, he hates it. And actually, I think you'll find anyone who's been through a divorce will probably tell you they hate divorce too. Because it is not a pleasant thing to go through for anyone. I want to read this quote. This is from a Christian woman who went through a divorce in the 1980s. She says this, 30 years ago, in February 1985, I got divorced. So far, I've lived 59 years, and without a doubt, divorce was the worst season of my life. Nothing I've suffered since that time even comes close. Not a wayward child, not a stroke, not the betrayal of a close friend, not job loss, not watching the collapse of a ministry, not the death of a parent, not a root canal when the Novocaine didn't work. Absolutely nothing compares to the horrific pain of having a spouse decide, I don't, after saying, I do. I believe God hates divorce because it hurts his people. It is hurtful to the people he loves. It causes serious damage to everyone involved and it leaves scars for life. Categorically, divorce is not God's best for his people, is it? And clearly, there can be an element of sin involved in any divorce, although not necessarily by both partners. 
But that's not the only reason God hates it. He hates it because it harms his people, his cherished possession, his prized creation. Divorce damages people. And also, if we go back to that point about divorce, uh, marriage being a picture of something to come, a picture of God's amazing plan of Christ and the church, actually divorce only serves to cheapen that picture. So when we tell the world, you know what, there's going to be a wedding one day, Christ is going to marry the church, and they look at it and think, well, great, but there's probably only about 50% chance of Christ and the church staying together because that's what happens in marriage. People divorce. Every time we see divorce, it cheapens that amazing picture that God's got of us. Actually, we know Christ's marriage to the church will last because God keeps his promises. But when we see marriages break on earth, it, says, it cheapens that image, doesn't it? But as I say, and we will come on to this, there are times, as much as God hates divorce, as much as it's not his best for us, as much as it's absolutely not what we want to see happen, there may be times where it's a necessary evil, shall we say. And we will come on to that in a little bit more detail. But I want to set, set that up. It's not, the, it's not God's best for us. God, God doesn't want us to, to go through divorce. Final point, point number three, which is also going to be point number one, according to my slide. The most important relationship in anyone's life is their relationship with God. Isn't that amazing how it follows on from Laura's talk? It's almost as if we live in the same house and we talk about these things before we come to church. All the way through Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, from Ten Commandments to Jesus, all the way through, it's absolutely clear. The first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, more than your partner, more than your desired partner, more than your desire for a partner. Ahead of any desire for your partner, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, he wants us to desire him. For in him, we find satisfaction. We find perfect love. We find utter faithfulness that no human relationship can ever match in full. And so getting that right, getting that right in our heads will lead to better, stronger human relationships and romances that are modelled on his love and his sacrifice for us. So whatever relationship status we find ourselves in this morning or in the future, we have to keep in mind our most important relationship is with God. And that's where we find grace, no matter what situation we're in. There's grace in a relationship with God. There's grace for the unmarried person to find fulfillment and completeness, whether or not they ever do find a human partner. Within a relationship with God, there's grace for the married person to live as one flesh with their partner, to enable them to forgive and understand them, even when they hurt or frustrate them. In our relationship with God, there is grace for those who are divorced or separated or widowed or remarried or whatever to rely on him for healing, to close the wounds and to bring something beautiful and positive out of the ashes of something lost. Even if that loss was due to sin and error, there is grace in a relationship with God. And Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians and throughout his writing and his guidance on marriage is that it is as important and as special as a human relationship is, no relationship matters as much as that relationship with God. I want you to really hear that this morning. And those are the three things that we need to keep in mind as we read through this passage. Okay. So looking at the passage itself. Here we go. Oh, I'm back. Okay, so... Here we go. 
Guidance to the unmarried. There's some nice pictures there, but you missed there. I just forgot to go through them. Sorry about that. Uh, guidance to the unmarried. So verses 6 to 9. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to, them, to do that than to burn with passion. So as I said, it's interesting that Paul is writing this as an unmarried person. The chances are he may have been married one day, we don't know for certain. Um, a lot of scholars will say he was probably widowed. Other scholars will say differently, but there is a, there's, a, there's a, a general thought he may have been married once, but as he's writing this, he is not married. But he's not troubled by it. He doesn't see that he's missing out on something that he should have. He's not bitter about it. He's not envious of, of people who are married. In fact, he views the celibate life, the life he's living, as a gift, as an opportunity. Something that is actually to his advantage. Why? Because he has complete freedom to focus on God. Complete freedom. There was a night last week where Debbie had taken George to the cinema and he came home. And at midnight he came into our room crying because he remembered a, a scene from the film which had really scared him. And he crawled into our bed and fell asleep next to me in a, in a bit of a whimper. And at four o'clock in the night, I woke up to find that George had gradually rolled right into the middle of the bed and was squeezing me over to the middle and I kind of turned over and as I turned over, Debbie rolled in from the other side and I was bent like that in the bed and I thought, maybe celibate isn't, isn't such a bad life. Imagine the space I would have in my bed. No, I'm going to <laughs> But actually, Paul's serious point is that He doesn't have the concerns of providing for a family, of caring for a spouse. He's free to travel the world, to plant churches, to be sold out living for God and spreading the gospel. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do more than anything in his life because that's his key relationship. And don't forget, he is writing as someone who is absolutely convinced that Jesus could return at any moment. I was thinking that's a great challenge to us. Do we live like that? Do we live in the reality that Jesus could come back at any moment? Jesus says, no man will know the hour. No one's going to know the day when I come back. It could be any time. And Paul lives on that edge. Do you know what? Jesus could come back any moment. We need to get the gospel out there. We need to spread the word. We need to tell people all about what's going on. We need to get people's lives straight. They need to know Jesus. And so his attitude is to hold earthly things, relationships included, very lightly. And not to spend his earthly hours and days worrying about finding Mrs. Wright, not to spend his earthly days bemoaning the lack of romance in his life, but to see the opportunity and to spread the message of Jesus. But that's Paul's stance, his stance, and he knows that not everyone will feel that way about singles. He acknowledges, actually, he has a gift. God has given him the ability to cope with that lifestyle and to be happy with it. But he also acknowledges that not everyone is wired that way. And actually it's a completely natural human desire to long for a relationship and to want to be married. And so Paul is categorically not anti-marriage, even though marriage might not be for him. 
He loves marriage. He values marriage. And he's not so naive as to think that everyone can just live happily single as he does. He writes passionately about marital intimacy in his writing, especially in, in, in Ephesians 5. But his heart is, I don't want anyone, whether you've got the gift of celibacy, whether you've got the gift of singleness as, as something you're happy with, or whether you, whether you hate it, or whether you're married or whatever, I don't want anyone to be so consumed with earthly relationships and marriage and sex that they miss the big picture. That our time on earth is short. It's temporary. We mustn't waste days obsessing over trying to find a husband or a wife when we have the perfect husband waiting for us for all eternity. Paul wants us to find fulfillment in Christ, whether we're married or whether we're unmarried. And we would state categorically as a church, marriage is not an essential for being a Christian. It's not a right, it's not a requirement of our walk with God. Nowhere are we each promised an earthly husband or wife. And we don't want to be a church that places pressure and expectation on people to get married. We want to value and uphold singleness just as Paul does, as much as we value and uphold marriage. So if you are unmarried this morning, the message is that Yes, you may have that natural desire for a husband and wife, and that is fine. But then nothing satisfies like a true relationship with God. And it's okay to desire and even to seek a spouse, but don't place that quest for human intimacy ahead of your desire for intimacy with the lover of your soul. Okay? Paul is really realistic about the physical desires and needs of humans. And he knows that while he's gifted to remain in celibacy without, uh, and without that, that sexual intimacy, he knows that other people find it harder. So that's why he says, if you can't control yourselves, then you should marry. If that desire for human intimacy is so great that you're burning with passion for someone, then by all means, marry them. Obviously, if they, as long as they want to marry you too. And the caveat is there, you don't just marry someone because you want to have sex. Okay, there's got to be something deeper there. Paul isn't just saying, hey, listen, if you can't control yourself, just go and get married to anyone. Grab anyone you can, just so you can start that. Obviously not. We want strong marriages with compatibility and prayerfulness and to take those decisions. But he is saying, do you know what? I believe, in, I believe that there's a gift of singleness, but I also know that some people, they don't have that gift and it's okay. Look for a partner, marry them, enjoy it. But just don't make that the, the prize goal of your life. Okay? Okay, so we have some instructions now for married Christian couples. So Paul's right here to Christians in the church in Corinth who are already married. And this, I will say this is probably the, the biggest chunk of, of the talk because of what's in it, but do stick with me. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to a husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So Paul now is issuing some key ground rules. He's speaking in these verses in a way that actually echoes the words of Jesus himself. That's why he says, not I, but the Lord. This isn't just me saying this. I'm simply repeating what Jesus has, has already said to you. 
And plainly and simply he says, a wife must not separate from her husband, a husband must not divorce his wife. And those words of Jesus found in, in all the gospel accounts were here in Matthew. He says, he says this, some Pharisees came to test Jesus. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any or every reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, as we said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And the Pharisees come back and say, well, why then does Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to do that because your wives, uh, to, do, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Paul's words, Jesus' words, they chime with that framework we had from the start, that God loves marriage, designed marriage, and he hates divorce. Marriage is very much at God's heart, and divorce absolutely isn't. And in Jesus' words, we see the reason for that. His emphasis is on that Genesis passage, that cleaving together into one flesh, two bodies becoming one. Marriage is two separate identities, two separate entities joined become one new flesh. It's a special godly union, and nothing should come between that. And in, in the Hebrew, when they talk about divorce, the word divorce literally translates as, as, as a, a hewing apart, like a, like a meat cleaver, hacking something that's meant to be one into two. It's not pleasant, is it? Although, I wouldn't mind a bit of steak, actually. But one thing... A marriage isn't, isn't like a little holding of hands where you can just take your hands apart and be, go back to being two. When you've been joined as one flesh, the only way you can be unjoined is to be hewn apart, hacked apart. That is not a pleasant, enjoyable, enjoyable process. And Jesus tells his questioners, actually, yeah, okay, Moses did say you can issue a certificate of divorce to your wife, but there were some clear restrictions on that around unfaithfulness. He didn't give you a license to divorce as you pleased, but he gave you a concession that if an infidelity and unfaithfulness had arisen, then as long as a certificate was issued, divorce could take place. But that was there to make sure that you didn't just end relationships willy-nilly. You didn't just chuck people out and, and start and end things as you pleased, but actually there had to be a process. There had to be something really, really necessary about it. Divorce is not simply a shove out the door and see you later and a nice, neat, comfortable thing. It's actually a painful, horrible process. And Jesus is sensing here what the Pharisees' question was, what the heart of it was, which was they wanted to treat divorce as a safety net. They wanted to treat divorce as an option to them if things didn't work out as enjoyable as they planned. If the spark had gone with their, their first wife or husband and they saw someone else they'd rather be with, well, I can just issue a certificate of divorce and move on. That's all right. No. Jesus says, no, it's not that trivial. It's not that simple. Marriage is worth more. You're entering into a sacred bond and it shouldn't be done lightly because removing that bond is painful and damaging and hard. 
And Paul just simply reiterates Jesus' stance. Husbands, wives, you're not to separate. You've made a commitment. You're one flesh. Don't chop that apart without some sort of special reason. And he also seems to say that if you have separated, it doesn't necessarily give you the right to seek a new partner. Remember, you committed to your spouse for life. You became one flesh. You took solemn vows before God. If you then decide to just break those vows for no good reason, then that should preclude you, Paul says, from entering into new vows because you didn't honor your first ones. His heart here is to prevent unstable, meaningless marriages where partners enter and say all the right things but ultimately have a mind to just walk away if the going gets tough, if they think they've found a better option. That's not cleaving, is it? That's not becoming one flesh and uniting and committing. I don't believe that Paul is saying that anyone who has ever been married once can never marry again. Because clearly elsewhere in Scripture, there are examples where Paul says actually, or Jesus says, okay, in certain situations, for example, uh, if you've been widowed, uh, also if you've been a victim of adultery, also, later on in this passage, he talks about if you've been married to a non-believer and the non-believer decides to walk away from the marriage, doesn't want to work at it, doesn't want to stay with you, and then he says, you're not bound. You're not bound if you're in that situation. So Paul isn't just saying, that's it. If you've been married once, you can never, ever be married again, regardless. There are some circumstances. But, overwhelmingly, the heart is to get married and make it work. I want to try and sum up our position as a church and freedom. What is our position on marriage and divorce? Well, our, our position is, do you know what? Divorce should never just be an acceptable option. We should never simply want to just accept divorce as an option. We need to fight for marriage. We need to protect marriage. We need to champion marriage. Our heart should not be for divorce to be an attractive option that we, we're looking to try and justify somehow. It's the nuclear option. It's the, the worst option, the least desirable outcome to any marriage when all of the avenues have been exhausted. Our heart is for marriages to survive, to thrive, and that means investing as a church, as couples, time and energy and prayer into them. It means learning how to be the best husbands, the best wives we can be, the best parents we can be. It means when things are not going well in a marriage, as a leadership team and as a church, we will rally around and support couples and look for ways to help them work through and restore marriage before we go anywhere near a divorce option. It means we will invest in marriages before they even take place with foundations laid through marriage preparation, through wise counsel. We want marriages in this church to stand the test of time, to actually reflect the ultimate marriage which they foreshadow. And we will, in this church, we will fight for marriage. And so if marriage is the path that you've chosen, that you've been able to go on, you better believe that our heart for you is to support you and to help you stay faithful and committed to that marriage and that, to help you have God as a centre of that marriage. But, if we remember our framework, God loves marriage, he hates divorce, but there may be occasions where divorce is, shall we say, the lesser of two evils. We have to acknowledge that in a fallen world, things don't always work out as we would desire. That sin can corrupt 
and can tear relationships apart. That's what Moses and Jesus referred to as that hardness of heart, where one partner or both partners get to a stage in their marriage where they will no longer soften their heart to their partner with forgiveness and grace and will instead decide to abandon the marriage in any number of ways. And there may be occasions where we find that two believers hit marital issues of such significance that divorce becomes part of the conversation. Jesus provides one example, adultery, where one partner sinfully chooses to break up their marriage to be with someone else. And in that instance, the remaining part, the the only option open to them may be divorce. And the Bible does suggest that that person may be free to, to, to move on and divorce and remarry without being in sin. Jesus makes clear that sexual immorality for one spouse is a defensible grounds for the divorce. It's not, it's not, it's not happy about it. It's not, it's not something we want to happen. But it can, it can happen. But we want to again, again make clear, we don't even regard divorce as automatic or desired when even sexual immorality, immorality arises. In any marriage, there will be trial, there will be sin, and there will need to be forgiveness. And love can cover over a multitude of of sins, and I've seen multiple instances of marriages restored, even after full-blown sexual immorality. I remember a couple in our church back in Leeds, in Gateway Church, um, where there's just a remarkable story of, of the man having a, a long, drawn-out affair in, back in the 80s. He left the marital home, not just for days or weeks, for, for years. He was separated from his wife. But his wife prayed and prayed and prayed, and prayed earnestly. And you know what? They were reunited. He saw the error of his ways. He repented fully, came back to his wife. And now they lead marriage courses for other couples. Having been through all that, God can restore even the most broken situation. And so even where we do see, sadly, sexual immorality in a marriage, we don't regard that as being an automatic end. Okay, there's been sin, divorce. No, we want to fight. We believe God can restore and, and bring something beautiful back, even out of, out of something horrible. But we do have to accept that sometimes unfaithfulness can damage a relationship beyond repair, where there's no repentance, where there's no prospect of it turning around. And that could lead to a divorce outcome. And I want to say as well, there may be other instances which occur where we need to prayerfully and with a heck of a lot of grace, consider divorce as a lesser of two evils, where ending a marriage might actually be the only safe outcome for both or one partner. Where the behaviour of one partner, even though they say they're a Christian, might not be consistent with the Christian life. And actually where the suffering partner may feel like they're yoked to someone who's actually just not upholding their vows before God. And for people in that situation, marriage can cease to be a partnership and can become a bondage, an inescapable trap. So, for example, in a marriage where a husband is systematically and repeatedly abusing his wife, whether that's sexually, physically, violently, emotionally, or a combination, where that's happening and there's no repentance, I think we have to accept that that behaviour is entirely incompatible with a biblical understanding of how a husband should treat his wife if a marriage has any chance of surviving. Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the husband's role to love his wife as Christ loves the church, to love his wife as his own body, to give himself up for her. 
And in the case of serial abuse, that's clearly not happening. And we would very, very carefully and prayerfully need to consider that sort of situation in a framework of grace and attempting to view those involved through the eyes of Christ and using the wisdom that God gives to try and sort a way through that situation. The Bible gives us some good advice about marriage, but it doesn't cover every single possible eventuality. And so we have to use what we know, we have to use the wisdom that God gives us and the grace that he gives us to sort through these sorts of situations pastorally. Paul even says later on in verse 25, he says that on one of the questions you've been given, do you know what, I haven't got a command from the Lord, but I'll give you a judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's saying, you know what, God hasn't given me a black and white answer here, but I'm going to give you what I think because... You know, God's given me some grace and some mercy and some, 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 some wisdom to work this out. And sometimes there might be instances where we, we don't have a biblically black and white answer to a situation. And we have to rely on, on the wisdom and the grace and the prayer that God gives us to find a suitable path. I think in, in a circumstance like that, and it's just an example, but if all attempts to reconcile a marriage and to keep a partner safe, there has to be grounds to consider that nuclear option. But it might be the only acceptable outcome and safe outcome in the interest of protecting one partner or other. But that is never something we would take lightly. And it would have to be taken with the heaviest dose of grace imaginable as we try and navigate through. Let me reiterate, Paul's message in verses 10 and 11, it, and it ours is too, is that marriage, first and foremost, is for life. Even when the going gets tough and it's not a commitment to be taken lightly and we will fight to protect and to grow marriage even when that going gets tough. But we do have to apply a heavy dose of grace where certain situations arise. Okay, do a bit of heaviness, my one joke of the talk. It's very corny, but equally yoked. I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll all enjoy that one, or maybe not a lot. The last part of this, sorry, I need something to lift the mood. <laughs> Verses 12 to 16, the last bit of the passage. Paul gives some instructions and advice to Christians who find themselves married to non-Christians. To the rest I say this, not I, I, not the Lord, if my brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife to be sanctified through her believing husband. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul here is addressing probably a group that was pretty prevalent in, in Corinth of Christians married to non-Christians, where, where one person responded to the gospel, but they were already married, and their partner hasn't responded to the gospel. And suddenly you find a believer married to an unbeliever. Horrible, tricky situation. And there may have been some people who, who were new to Christianity who then chose, inadvisably, to, to marry a non-believer as well. And here the church is asking Paul the question, what do we do? Do we just forget? 
do we do we end the marriage? They seem very keen to end marriages quite soon ago. They don't even, they, their constant answer is, should we stop having sex? Should we, should we stop being married? Should we stop this? Should we stop that? Paul's like, no. No, work at it. Paul's counsel is that it is not necessary. If you're a believer, you find yourself married to an unbeliever, it's not necessary to divorce them. In fact, that's not grounds for divorce. Rather, it's an opportunity to see salvation spread even further. Because maybe through being married to you, through your faith, maybe that will end up seeing your, your spouse saved. Maybe through seeing your relationship with God, they, they will see, oh, I want that. I want that too. Why can't I have that? It's not an easy path to follow. And Paul and the Bible very clearly would advise if you're not married and you're, you're wondering about getting married, the advice would be don't marry someone who's not a Christian because that's good. that is a hard road to choose. It's going to be very, very difficult to reconcile those things. But if you're already in that situation, if you've responded to the gospel and your partner hasn't, stick with them. Stick with them. Because you may find that you bring them with you and they become saved too. Live in peace with them. Show them the gospel. And who knows, you may be the key role in them ultimately finding their own relationship with Jesus. You've committed to them. You've made the promise to them. Don't end it just because you think it's going to be difficult. But, and the caveat there, as I mentioned before, if you're married to a non-believer and the non-believer decides, you know what, forget it. I'm done with this. I don't want to be married to you anymore. I'm walking away with no possibility of reconciliation. Paul says, you know what, in that situation, if you're the believer and your partner has walked out on you, they don't want to be married to you anymore, you're not bound. Okay, I understand. It's difficult. They don't want to be with you. You're not bound. You're not bound by the marriage thing. There's a caveat. But where possible, stick together. Work at it. Work at them. Pray for them. Try and bring them along with you. Okay. So in, in application, looking at some key points. And thank you for staying with us. I know this is one of those topics which is not the most comfortable to listen to and think about because it's, it's one that has an impact on all of us in some way. And there might be something in the passage today, in, our, in what we looked at there, that has brought something to the surface. Maybe a bit uncomfortable. Maybe you're sitting here this morning feeling a little bit convicted, a little bit like God's prodding you a bit. Perhaps you've, you've had the, the misfortune to, be th- to go through a divorce, in which, looking back, you think, maybe I could have avoided that. Or perhaps you're in a marriage, but you're feeling the strain. And you've wondered... It's, Maybe I need to get divorced. Maybe, maybe that's the right option. Maybe that's what I should be, should be doing. And you've looked at that rather than trying to invest in, and re-strengthen your marriage. Or maybe you're not married. But in listening to this one, you realise actually you're placing too high importance on getting married, on finding a partner. And you, you feel that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm overdoing that. I need God more than I need a partner. I want to say the key message as we close, the key message is that in any of these things, if there's anything that's been brought up this morning that has highlighted a bit of sin or something in your life, there is no sin in connection to this that is unforgivable, that is not covered by the grace of God. None at all. None at all. 
as important and as highly as we value these things, we are covered by the grace of God. And whatever mistakes we may or may not or may make in these areas now or in the future, however badly we might feel we've blown it or we might blow it, God still loves us. And he still wants us to experience that love in its absolute fullness. And you know, as passionate and as challenging as the Bible is on sexual immorality, we also find grace right there in the Gospels. When Jesus was confronted with a situation where there was an adulterous woman who, by law, should have been executed. There was an angry mob waiting to throw stones and kill her. What was Jesus' reaction? I don't condemn you. That he has not seen cast the first stone. And then his words to the woman were, go away and sin no more. Grace. Forgiveness. There is nothing that you could possibly have done that without that with repentance cannot be forgiven. That is available to all of us. His sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross provides forgiveness for all sin, even when we mess it up royally. It doesn't mean that we're free from the consequences of our actions. A broken marriage and a bad relationship decision can leave that web of emotional strife. It can leave an impact. It can leave an effect and a mark on people. But it is forgiven. It can be forgiven. And I just want to leave you with that that absolute key message that the most important relationship in any of our lives is that relationship with God. And if we get that relationship right, all our human relationships will line up and follow and we'll get those right too. And so I would encourage us as a church to be people that are over and above marriage or singleness that we encourage depth of relationship with God and that we seek to then affirm each other either in our singleness or in our marriedness, if that's a word, marriage. God first and everything else after. And for those of you who are married, let me encourage you again, fight for it, invest in it, work in it.